As I read this passage, let us all consider that these are the very words of God, that this is Christ speaking. So let's listen. I'm going to read John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that your joy may be in me, and that, that, sorry, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What a wonderful passage to sit in for the next short while. So what happens when you pluck a pear from a tree? It deteriorates. What happens when you catch a fish and lift it out of the water? It'll die. What happens when you unplug a computer from the outlet? It shuts down. Why? Because it's been separated from its life source. And in a similar way, in John 15, the Christian is so dependent on Christ that not only are we called to cling to him for everything, but Jesus says, without him you can do nothing. A little bit of the context here in John 15, it's right in the middle of the farewell discourse. The chapters that record Jesus' final hours with his disciples as he prepares to go to the cross. And like any good story, when there's a character that, that knows they're about to die, what happens? They usually give some sort of farewell speech to their companions. This speech is anything but trivial. It's very weighty. It's important. There's usually some sort of passing on of the baton. You think of Moses commissioning Joshua, David giving the kingdom to Solomon, Elijah handing off the prophetic torch to Elisha. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is doing the very same thing here. He's been training his disciples for three years, 
But in these final hours, there's an extra weightiness, an extra punch to what he has to say. And this is far more than just a pep talk before the big game. This is a matter of life and death. As he prepares to commission his disciples to be his church in the world. Another thing about the context, John 15 contains a metaphor. And when interpreting uh, metaphors, we got to remember that the basic message of the metaphor is the main message that's being communicated. And what that means is that we can't press the metaphor too hard and look for significant uh, information in maybe smaller details because every metaphor by nature breaks down at a certain point. But as Jesus uses a metaphor here, we got to believe that it's useful. And of course they are. But what I would encourage us today to do is to focus on the main thing that Christ is saying here in John 15, using this metaphor. And here's the main point. This is what I think Jesus is trying to communicate most clearly. You are dependent on Christ for everything. So go to Christ for everything. Make Christ central in your life. Don't think you can live without him. Because he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. I'm your very source of life and living. Interestingly, uh, Jesus goes on after saying, abide in me in 15. In 16, he explains that he's about to leave them. Understandably, this is a bit confusing for the disciples. But Jesus assures them that even in leaving them, he will be with them. By his spirit. So let's jump into verse one here. Uh, this is kind of the first three verses here are kind of a foundation for verse four, which is abiding in Christ. You may recognize this as the abide in Christ. We 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 kind of say it often. Maybe this is a popular text that you come to. Uh, but again, before we get to that imperative, that command of verse four. Jesus wants to put a few indicatives in place, some essential truths that are vitally important to understanding the call to abide. And so first he says this, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. This is the seventh and the final I am statement that Jesus makes in John's gospel. Uh, and what these I am statements are are Jesus' own self-declarations of who he is. And in each of them, he uses a vivid metaphor to describe his nature and his purpose. It's also interesting that the biblical number seven, uh, as, as you may know, it, it communicates a fullness, a completeness. And so these seven I am statements, if you were to study them, you would get a full-orbed self-revelation of who Jesus is as both God and Savior. In the earlier chapters, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here in chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the true vine? Well, moving forward, as we unpack the metaphor, that is going to be a very key part. It's going to be the heart of the metaphor is Jesus as the vine. 
But before we get there, there's a double meaning when he says that he is the true vine. In the Old Testament, one of the metaphors that God uses for Israel, his chosen people, is a vine. You see it in several places. In Psalm 80, uh, it says that God brought this vine out of Egypt. Of course, we see that in the exodus of God's people from Egypt. Isaiah 5 says that it was planted, that God planted this vine on a fertile hill in the promised land. Drove out God's, in, or God's enemies, Israel's enemies, and he planted them in the promised land. Yet both Isaiah chapter 5 and Jeremiah chapter 2 describe the sad scene. This vine was unfruitful. It turned, it didn't serve God, it served idols. So God, as the vine dresser, stopped tending it. He delivered it over to its enemies because it wasn't living up to the purpose for which he planted it. And so how astounding is it when Jesus comes along and he says, I am the true vine. He's making a direct connection to God's people, Israel. But he says, he is the true vine. He is the true Israel, which means that he is all that Israel was supposed to be. The faithful vine that bears an abundance of fruit. And for us today, to recognize that it's actually from this vine that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can be given life. Jesus inherits the covenant promises. We talk a lot about covenant promises that reach all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, all the way back to the earliest representatives of God's people. And it's Jesus that inherits the covenant promises on our behalf, and he shares them generously to all who trust in him. And it's only because of this, so I start here, because it's only because of this fact that the rest of the passage makes any sense. If Jesus wasn't the true vine, then it wouldn't make sense to abide in him. But he is. And so now we listen to what he says moving on from here. Jesus is the true vine. He's all that Israel is supposed to be. He inherits the covenant promises, and he shares them with us, his followers. But then Jesus says this. He says, my father is the vine dresser, or the farmer, the one doing the work, the one doing the work of taking away and pruning. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Later on, we're going to see that we are the branches, but... There's two types of branches. Those that bear fruit and those that don't. It's right there in the text. It's very, very explicit. Skipping ahead to verse 6, we see that the branches that don't abide in Christ are cut off. They're thrown into the fire and they're burned. That's serious language. So who is this branch that doesn't bear fruit? Well, first, some have taken this to mean Christians who have lost their faith. Maybe they've lost their salvation. Maybe they were in Christ, but somehow now they're not. They've left. certainly seems like that could be a possibility of this phrase, every branch in me. But what's the number one rule of interpreting Scripture? We say it all the time. Scripture interprets Scripture. 
We've got to consider what the whole Bible says. The whole Bible's testimony of the truth will help us understand individual passages. And so when we do that, we can come to reject that first position. We can come to a firm understanding that those who are truly in Christ can never be separated from him, Romans chapter 8. They can never be snatched from his hand, John chapter 10. They can never be disowned as children of God, John chapter 1. They can never be unborn again, John chapter 3. And they will never be cast out, but they'll surely be raised up on the last day, John 6. John's gospel wants you to be absolutely confident that true believers in Christ can never lose their salvation. But Christ holds them firmly in his hand. But in the same context of that glorious truth, we do encounter a type of person, especially here in John's gospel, which is why I think this makes so much sense when we come to chapter 15, is because John's been presenting this the whole time. There is a type of person who is outwardly associated with Jesus, but is inwardly far from him. Someone who claims to believe, but doesn't truly believe. Someone who claims to be a disciple, but turns out to be fake. And we see this in John 6, 66. Jesus is teaching, and after he teaches something that really just demands your entire life surrender, it says, after this, many of his disciples, they're described as his disciples, but they turned back and they no longer walked with him. So these aren't true disciples. The difference between the true disciple and the fake disciple is this, abiding. And it's not just in chapter 15, but John 8, 31 says this explicitly. Listen up. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Abiding is what makes the difference. In the context of John and the rest of the Bible, the branches that are taken away are, are those that have had some outward association to Christ, but by their lack of fruit, they show themselves to be fake. They're not true believers. They're not true branches because they're not abiding in the vine. Or, as John later explains in his first letter, uh, 1 John 2.19, he says, there were some who went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. You will know a tree by its fruit. So these people were never truly united to Christ, and their lives showed it. Sometimes we see this in the here and now, but sometimes it's not until much, much later. So that's what I think the first type of branch is. But there's a second type of branch. Another branch in verse 2. This branch is truly connected to the vine. He says, every branch that does bear fruit, the vine dresser prunes that it may bear more fruit. Pruning hurts. It's painful. It's cutting off the parts of the branch that are hindering its fruitfulness but it's the gardener's active work to shape the branch into what he wants it to be. And you can be sure that God is going to do this for all true branches in Christ. Even though at the time, it hurts. 
but it's necessary and it leads to life and it leads to exceeding fruitfulness. But we're familiar with this concept. If you consider uh, Proverbs chapter 3, we could liken this pruning process to the discipline of God. But, but here, some of the, the goodness and the promises of God's discipline. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Or Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So discipline, pruning, God's love for all true branches. So could it be that persecution, trials, pain, loss, loneliness, weariness, or the discipline of God in your life? Could it be that this is the evidence of his love for you? Could it be that pruning is a privilege, that it's a blessing, and it leads to greater growth, greater fruitfulness, and as we're going to see in the last verse of this passage, greater joy? May we be quick to have that perspective that Jesus in his word promises us. Let us rejoice in this love and be driven to complete and total dependence. Paul has a testimony of this in the life of Paul, went through many trials. Perhaps one of those most godly men that ever lived, but he went through many trials. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 8-11, to he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever felt that way? Indeed, we have felt that we have received the sentence of death. But, Paul's words, this was not, this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul had this view that all of the discipline God brings in our life for those in whom he loves is for our good, but it's to drive us to complete and utter dependence on him, which is the same comparison Christ is drawing in this passage. If you are truly in Christ, God loves you too much to let you go unpruned. He loves you too much to let you wander away. Instead, he's going to put things in your life. He's going to prune you in such a way that you are driven to complete and utter dependence on him, which is where Christ wants us to be. But there's one more essential truth before we get to verse 4. There's one more essential truth Christ lays down in verse 3. And it's extremely significant that it comes before verse 4. 
So there's one sense, as we've just discussed, there's one sense that God prunes us in this lifelong work of transforming us. But there's also a sense that he's already pruned us. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. If you think about it, cleaning and pruning are extremely connected. In fact, they're actually from the same root word in the Greek in this passage. If you, if you look at it, the verb of pruning brings out the results of being clean. It's the same root word. They're the same, these, are, these verses are connected. At first, I was wondering, what in the world? Verse 3 seems like it's coming out of nowhere, but it's connected to verse 2. So it's almost like Jesus is saying this, God prunes you for greater fruitfulness, and already you are pruned. How does that make sense? Is Jesus contradicting himself here? This taps in to another grand truth of salvation. This grand truth that all those who are united to Christ through saving faith are ushered into an already but not yet reality. And this reality is becoming who you are. Becoming who you are. Because of the work of the true vine, Jesus Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection that is given to us in the gospel, we can say that we are saved. Remember a few weeks ago, David preached and, and he was sharing that there are three tenses to salvation. You, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. When we are saved, it is a past tense one-time act in the moment of conversion. In that moment, we are considered to be clean, verse 3. We are declared to be righteous, or in theological terms, we are justified. If we were to die in that exact moment, after receiving Christ, being born again, then the gavel would come down in the heavenly court and say, innocent. It's as good as done. You are already clean. You're already righteous. So, if Jesus is already saying that, then the call to abide, verse 4, that flows out of that cannot be understood as any sort of means of salvation. But instead, it's the outworking of salvation. It's the being saved part of it. And this is important because when we talk about abiding Christ, we don't want to turn it into a works-based, earn-your-way-into-Christ message. But salvation, as Scripture clearly portrays, is not just about saying a prayer and moving on with your life like nothing ever happened. Nor is it about just throwing all of your hope into the future salvation of heaven. These are indeed glorious realities, but Christ in John 15 is talking about the present benefits of being united to him in salvation. He's talking about a life lived with him and a life lived for him, God bringing about more and more fruits and making you in reality what he's already declared you to be. He's declared you to be this, and now he's making you to be the thing that he's already declared you to be. And as he sends his disciples out into the world, Jesus wants them to know that they cannot do it without him. How could you? How could you do it without him? They must stay close to him even as he's already drawn them close. So verse 4, 
Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The heart of the metaphor is very simple. Just like the branch can't bear fruit without abiding in the vine, so you can't bear fruit without abiding in Christ. So the call is this, abide in Christ. This abiding, this connection, is what we've already talked about a little bit as union with Christ. You're united with Christ. That means we're not only saved from something, sin and judgment, but we're also saved to something, to a life lived with Christ, united with him in a loving relationship of complete dependence and bearing fruit as we serve him wherever we go. John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, that in him is union with Christ. You could even translate that verb into him. If you believe into Christ, you are relocated to this status of being in Christ. And in John 15, the key word that talks about this is abide. And it's nine times that Jesus uses this word. So I'm reading this passage. I'm not that smart, but nine times? He says it nine times. I want to listen up. This word abide, it means this. It means to remain, to continue to stay. Or it could mean to dwell, to reside in. All of those words are are wonderful words to consider in relation to Christ. Dwell in Christ, reside in him, continue, remain. Maybe it's helpful to think about the noun abode that comes from the word abide. It's another word for a home or a dwelling. For Christians, God gives you a new residence. He gives you a new abode in Christ. Here at Christmas, we talk a lot about God with us. God with us right there. Christ is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when we come to John 15, we can draw the conclusion that he came to live with us so that we might live with him. And that's this union with Christ. That's the, the, the push and the pull, the give and the take, the, the one without the other. You are in Christ, and he is in you. And we came that we could have life and have it abundantly. And it's only through being in him that we can have life abundantly. It's so vital that we abide because it's vital to bearing fruit. And bearing fruit is so vital because it is vital. It's the evidence of being a true branch, a true disciple. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This isn't Jesus getting condescending and saying, prove it. That's not what he's trying to do. It's just the reality. It's the reality of the implications of who he is and what he's come to do. Because Christ is an effective, nutrient-enriched vine, the true Israel, because Christ is who he is, all true branches will bear fruit. All true disciples will bear fruit, but only by abiding in Christ. 
So let's, divide, uh, let's define fruit. If you're familiar with the New Testament, maybe you're already thinking about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I know probably all of our kids could, could rock that one out. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And this is true. Union with Christ certainly bears the fruit of a Christ-like life produced by what? The Holy Spirit. But I want to argue that fruit-bearing is actually first about being before it's about doing. It's first about being in Christ before it is about doing, abiding in Christ. But it's the doing that flows from the being. This is why, in verse 3, Jesus said, Already you are clean. Abide in me. The being of abiding in Christ, of union with Christ, is finding your core identity in his life, death, and his resurrection. Or, in other words, it's you are no longer you. You're no longer you. You are you in Christ. You could put hyphens there. It could be a hyphenated name. You are you in Christ. And Christ is in you. So in his life, so those three, life, death, and resurrection, his life, his abiding is believing that his perfect life, his perfect earned righteousness, is now credited to your account. So much so that when God looks at you, he doesn't actually see the filthy record that you have. He doesn't see all the ways that you fall short. But he sees the clean perfect, spotless record of Christ. Already you are clean because of his life. In his death, it's believing that your sinful self has been crucified with Christ. It's dead. It's no longer alive. Sin is not your master. You've been set free. You've been given a new nature. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. But then his resurrection, it's believing that you've been given new life in Christ because Christ didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And along with him, you've been born again. You've been raised up with Christ to live forever. And nothing can snatch you out of his hand. But Jesus says he will raise you up in the last day. Here's more of this already not, le- not yet. Ephesians 2 said, says that you have been raised. Past tense. It's already as good as done. And then John 6 says he will raise you up on the last day day. What a glorious, multifaceted salvation that we have. So union with Christ, if we're trying to unpack this, abiding in Christ, it's first about being overwhelmed by the grace of Christ, being satisfied in him. Or as he says in verse 11, that his joy would be in you And because his joy is in you, your joy may be full. Have you ever thought about the joy of Christ? Christ's joy in me? Are you serious? Hebrews tells us that it was for what? It was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. And is now seated at the right hand of God. That imagery of of Christ sitting down represents this completeness, 
this finished work, this satisfaction in his work. Christ takes a seat at the right hand of God in absolute joy for what he has accomplished. And that joy, Christ says, I want it to be in you, and I want it, your joy to be full. So that's, that's more about the being. But it's not that the doing isn't important. Jesus says the doing is actually the evidence of the being. The fruit of the vine shows that the nutrients are flowing freely from the vine to the branch and bearing fruit. If you want to know whether a branch is connected to the vine, look at the fruit. If you want to know whether a person is connected to Christ, look at their life. Experientially, this identity in Christ plays out in a thousand ways. Abiding in Christ means orienting your entire existence around this identity. It's, it's orienting everything around being in Christ. And so it's banking your standing before God on Christ and not on your own effort. It's surrendering every area of your life to him, the big and the small, to the lordship of Christ and not just saving a few parts for king self. It's communing with him daily. It's living out the hymn, I need thee every hour. Not just thinking you can check in with him every now and then. It's walking with Christ through the cancer diagnosis and not thinking you can manage it on your own. It's consulting Christ in every business decision, not relying on your own wisdom. It's celebrating Christ in every up, it's praising him in every down. And it's falling into the arms of Christ in every disappointment instead of running to other things to numb the pain. For me, yesterday, it's uh, remembering Christ in me when I'm parenting these blessed children running around my house. When I'm telling them for the tenth time not to put your feet on the dinner table not to snatch your brother's toy, not to stand on the arm of the chair, not to climb the bookshelves, when I'm having to remind them every five seconds to stay on task, focus on one thing and complete it. It's remembering that when the anger is swelling up in me and when I need to repent for being harsh. It's literally saying out loud in the middle of everything, Jonathan... Abide in Christ. Choose joy. And it's believing that at that very moment, I can start living that out. We don't have to wait. Grace comes now. I can abide in Christ and let his joy come through me now. His grace flow through me. His justice and his goodness, yes, but his kindness and his gentleness now. And praying that my kids would have his joy and it would be full in them. So abiding in Christ, it's everything. And we could go on and on. Give me, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It's an all of life worship where there's not an ounce of your life that isn't shaped by Christ. It's this Romans 6. Romans 6 is another wonderful passage that talks about union with Christ. But this posture in Romans 6 of presenting yourself 
the doing, presenting yourself to God as those, the being, as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And so for Paul, abiding in Christ is be who you are. Be who you are. And here is a key link. Abiding in Christ can be compared to spirit-filled living. John 15 is sandwiched between two passages that talk about the Holy Spirit, John 14 and John 16. Tim is going to be unpacking John 16 in a couple of weeks, but suffice it to say for now that the way you abide in Christ is through His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the way that Christ can be in and with every single Christian across the entire globe, across all of history, at the same time. That is why John 16, 7 says, Christ said it would be better, better, that he leave his disciples' physical presence so that he could send his spirit, which is his spiritual presence that knows no bounds. So let's break this down into a couple more practical takeaways. I've said abiding in Christ is everything. Well, let's have some practicality around it too. Let's break this down into what it looks like to abide in Christ. And the first thing I want to say is that abiding actively looks like exactly what Christ said twice in this verse. Sorry, in, twice in the book of John. John 8.31 says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So his word. And then in our passage, John 15, verses 9 and 10, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. How do you abide in my love? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what's the common thread? Abiding in Christ is abiding in his love. Abiding in his love is keeping his commandments. If you want to know his commandments... You abide in his word. This is how we glorify God. Verse 8, improve to be his disciples. So first, there's four practical applications here. First, abide in his word. Read his word. Read the Bible that he has preserved for us. It's an amazing privilege to have this. Uh, verse 7, my words abide in you. And, and how, can, how can that be true if you don't read his word. So coming up to New Year, you've got a new crisp, clean ESV Bible that as you open it, the pages are still kind of sticking together a little bit. Let's unstick all the pages. Let's read God's word. Make this the year you double down on God's word. When you read it, though, remember this. There is something amazingly spiritual going on when you read his word because his word is alive it's not dead words even if you do nothing else but just simply read it there's power god's word will accomplish god's purposes when you open up his word you're exposing yourself to the divinely prescribed way of hearing from god you say i want to hear from god go to the place where he said he's going to talk and that is in his word. But when you read his word, remember, drink deeply in the word giver, abiding in Christ, abiding in his word. 
Number two, abide in his supper. Take the Lord's Supper, or as it's often called, communion. Talk about union with Christ. Verse 4, where it's Christ in me, me in Christ, abide in him as he abides in me. Well, that's pictured in communion. And again, just like his word, there's something incredibly significantly spiritual about this meal. John 6, 56, he says, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Those are the exact words. If you want to abide in Christ, well, one way is to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that's actually when the fake disciples walked away because they're like, what is he talking about? Well, then he goes on and he institutes the Lord's Supper. He says, this is how you do it, with bread and wine. But it's not simple eating of bread and drinking of, of wine. Let's believe that we're feasting on Christ. He is spiritually present with us in the meal. We can come to the table. We can repent of our sin. And we can embrace the gospel of grace in Christ. So when you take communion, take Christ Feast on the Savior and all his benefits. Abide in him by abiding in his supper. Number three, abide in his body. Abide in his body. And what I mean by that is the church. Abiding in Christ is about connectivity, and being connected to Christ is being connected with his body. His body is the church. This means joining a local church, committing to be actively involved, using your gifts in worship and in fellowship and in ministry and in serving and in loving, bearing fruit in the context of other Christ and you's bearing fruit. The local church is where you're going to be exposed to the first two things that we've said, the preaching of his word, the, the meal of the Lord's Supper, and it's the unique spiritual fellowship of being in the presence of other believers in Christ. Abide in his body. Number four, abide in his love. It's explicit in the text, verses 9 and 10. Because Christ was confident in the Father's love, we can be confident of Christ's love. And we can show his love to others. And this is one of the most important fruits about being a disciple of Christ. Love. There's a sense that Jesus summarized the entire law, the entire commandments. Love God and love others. Abide in his love. So one big question for us here today is, is simply this. Is Christ enough? I see the world turning to a thousand different things to give them life, and if I'm honest, I turn to them myself often. To the false vines of financial provision, the false vine of social acceptance, of physical fitness, of academic or business success, or the false vine of a good and comfortable life. And Christ is calling me, Christ is calling you to abide in him and in him alone. He's the true life. He's the only real source of life. So stay connected to him. Let's not go looking for false vines because we have the true vine. And if you've never been set free 
by surrendering your life to Christ. Let today be the day. Come. Come to the one that will never let you down. But he abides in all those who humble themselves and embrace him so that they can abide and they can have life and they can bear fruit and they can be his disciples and they can go forth and multiply their lives in other people. Or maybe, maybe you're someone who's just going through the motions. The hard truth is that there were false branches in this metaphor. Maybe your relationship to Christ is like these false branches. Maybe it's merely external, but inwardly, you're not really abiding. And it's becoming more and more obvious because your life doesn't seem to have any fruit. So maybe you're just showing up to church, but in your heart and in your mind, you'd rather be anywhere else. Maybe you're even a church member and taking communion, but you don't take Christ with you the rest of the week. Well, Jesus tells us this. He tells us in verse 11, his goal is that his joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus does want his disciples to have confidence in him. Jesus does want his disciples to have assurance of faith. That is a gift that we can bask in and enjoy. He wants them to know that he is in them, and because he is in them, they can abide in him. But the scriptures, and Jesus here, does also lead us to some self-examination. So here's the question. Do you see fruit in your life? When no one else is looking, are you experiencing the all-satisfying joy of being found in Christ. Take some time today, even now during the Lord's Supper, to pray the end of Psalm 139. I think it's a wonderful prayer. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 says this, Search me, O God, and know me. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The call is the same. Abide in Christ, and he will bear fruit in you. This is a life and a death call. Or maybe lastly, maybe you're here, and you're really struggling through a season of pruning. We'll all be there at some point. If God is to do his work of transforming us, we'll all be pruned, and it's going to hurt. But take heart, the vine dresser is at work. He is shaping you more into who he's made you to be. And his work will stand, and there will be joy. So for all of us, no matter where you are today, the call from Jesus is abide in me. Take joy in Christ. Let your doing flow from your being in Christ. Let us pray to that end now. Would you join me? Jesus, we thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. We thank you that you are the true vine and that we can abide in you as you abide in us. Lord, may your word expose us 
May those who are keeping Christ at a distance make today the day of abiding. Lord, give us humility and confidence as you prune us. May your joy swell up and overflow in and through us, that the world may know that Christ is God and Savior. Lord, abide in us as we abide in you. May we have full assurance and confidence in the vine dresser, in the vine, and in your love. We give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.